Does my face change shape? Does all this running change the shape of my head? Welcome to 80s Music Exposed, the podcast in which we review all the best albums of the 80s, one month at a time. We will break them down, give you the skinny, and duke it out over whether you should or should not dig these back out again. If you are ready for an 80s music deep dive, from Public Enemy to Wham, Eno to XTC, Madonna, Hair Metal, Reggae, and all points in between, then crank the boombox, turn the Walkman up to 10, and ooh, let's go. Now, from the kitchen, Chris and Henry. Well, to get everybody in the mood for um, October of 1980, we thought we would just go over a few significant events that happened in October 1980, and then you'll be ready to hear about the records. The first, this is really significant. You probably don't remember this one, do you? I don't. Okay. Uh, George Britt is forced out of the World Series with hemorrhoids. He was. Why? Can how can they force you out? Well, what do they do? Inspect your butthole? <laughs> I, well, I, I, <laughs> I see something. Ah. Uh, so I like the way that you interpreted the sentence. Basically, it wasn't the the ba- it wasn't Major League Baseball that forced him out. It oh. was the hemorrhoids that forced him oh, out. Oh, okay. The hemorrhoids were so painful that it forced George Brett from the game. Now. What I like about this story, and I liked it as a kid, was this was my first introduction to publicly proclaiming that you had hemorrhoids. Oh, really? Which I found I found it weird. You know, like sports stars usually aren't. They, you would have thought they would have faked a leg injury or something, or said he had a some sort of hamstring pull. But nope, he went ahead and said it. He had the hemorrhoids. The second. Uh, significant event is presidential nominee Ronald Reagan promises to name a woman to the U.S. Supreme Court, and by damn it, he did. Mm. Sandra Day O'Connor was a uh, Reagan appointee. She was, mm-hmm. and ended up being kind of liberal, right? I know, I know. Kind of maybe backfired on them a little bit, but hey, he 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 did what he said he was going to do. What's the third event? This Henry? is interesting. It was a light month. What? The first consumer use of home banking, right, by computer, was. Uh, by United American Bank in Knoxville, Tennessee. So, yeah, those are our uh, significant events from October of 1980. Fortunately for all of you listeners out there, the records from this month are fucking tops compared to significant events. And, Henry, before we get into the first one, I just wanted to see what your take was on this. Have you have you thought about these months? These are just the first 10 months of 1980. How many classic records... Not just for that month, but for all time we've reviewed. What you're and saying I, is that almost every month that we've looked at in the year 1980, there's been one like unstoppable classic must listen to. I'm saying me and you need to records, stop and smell right? the roses because every year may not be as good as 1980. Oh. And we are. Headed. Well, you've warned me. You've warned me. You said that things were going to get rough there for a while. Right. And. I'm sure we'll discover stuff we like, but I think we should just yeah. take a moment and say, God damn, think of the records that we've been reviewing and think of the five that we've got right here. Mm-hmm. I mean, what's the first one, Henry? The first record by a little band, their their debut album. Little band. A little band called U2. Uh, it was released on October 20th of uh, 1980. It's uh, called Boy. Okay. And uh, we're going to play a uh, part of... Uh, one of the more interesting songs on the record. I yeah, I think it might be my favorite after going back and listening. Yeah, on Cot Dub.
You know, I read that On Cot Dub was written in the studio. This is their debut album, and um, it was produced by Steve Lillywhite. One thing when I was doing a little homework for this, I didn't know, but they had lined up Martin Hannett to record it. I was Did shocked. you know that? I, I, I found it out in the research. I couldn't believe it because Martin Hannett, for those of you who don't know, is a, is a big, iconic figure in indie I guess you call it indie or indie, yeah. Post punk music. He produced uh, both of the Joy Division records. So if you know Joy Division, if anybody out there knows about Joy Division, that kind of music. You so know, it's kind of cool. He was, in, he was like instrumental in that sound. But the cool legend of Martin Hannon is he was notoriously horrible to work with, and in fact, he kind of the. If you've seen the movie Twenty Four Hour Party People, he basically just told Joy Division what the fuck to do, mm-hmm. and they just did it. And in fact, I think Henry, me and you have said this when we reviewed a Joy Division record before. The guys that are now still living from Joy Division, they don't like the way the Joy Division records sound. <laughs> <Isn't that weird? laughs> They're still pissed about the way Martin <laughs> Hannett did their record, which everyone thinks is classic. But I thought it was also interesting if you think about the egos involved, but putting Bono and Martin Hannett in the same room. Bono probably told him, even at that early stage, to just go fuck off. Hard right? to know. It's hard to know how much in control. that. Well, obviously, they were in control enough to tell Martin Hannett to you know, kick rocks. Steve Lillywhite uh, produced uh, people like Morrissey. I know that he did a he did some Dave Matthews albums. I know that he did he a was, lot of he did a lot of records that we're going to come across in the late eighties and and if we ever got to the nineties into yeah. the nineties too. So he's he's kind of a big guy too. Um, I also thought it was interesting, Henry. For me, the the and I don't want to get too this is this episode is where I'm going to get my most musician nerdy. Yeah, but. I really found listening to this that I'd forgotten how this record basically you can hear you two trying to trying different influences yeah. and you can hear all this stuff going on, but they can't get away from just being they're still already you two. Yeah. They're, they're like al- they're already you. You already knew they were bigger. But here's the beautiful thing about this. They're Bono was was not Bono. Right. 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 The edge was good. But he wasn't so drilled into his well, edgeness. Here is that the thing that I, and here's where I went a little further. I think he further. played better. Well, here's what I wanted to get your opinion on. So going a little deeper on this, and I, the only reason I, I went here is because I remember the video when I was a kid from this record. It was a live clip, mm-hmm. and and the Edge played this crazy Gibson Explorer guitar, mm-hmm. which to me was shaped like my home state of Tennessee. It's like this big fucking thing. Mm-hmm. The difference on Boy and War. Is he's playing with humbucker pickups. Oh, really? It's a Gibson humbucker sound with all his effects still starting to come into focus, mm-hmm. but it's a nastier, dirtier. Think about, for those of yeah. you that don't know where I'm going here, uh, think about a Les Paul. Think about um, mm-hmm. Led Zeppelin sound versus Eric Clapton who played a Fender. So he didn't play the, he didn't play, he didn't pick up war. He didn't play, he didn't pick up, start play Fenders until after. And, and I, when I did the research, I found out that he didn't, he didn't, they didn't have the money. He owned one guitar. He had the Gibson Explorer <laughs> until after this record. So it's kind of neat. I was listening back to this thinking, this is really cool. If you want to know if you're not a music head, but you're like, what's the difference in a Fender guitar sound and a fucking Gibson guitar sound? Play Boy and then play War. And that's really a big difference. But I, I kind of liked it, Henry. It's kind of more of a, um, rough and ready sound and then i can't remember which song it was but do you did you did you pay attention there's one song where he actually plays like a blues solo kind of thing i mean kind of which i've never heard the edge doing it i don't think he did it that great so he probably was like fuck that i'm not doing that anymore but it was interesting how many different styles they tried to hit on yeah, this record and i think that's one of the things i like about it like i seem to have this weird affinity for bands that are not quite in focus and maybe a little rough sound i really liked the way they they had not figured out that Bono was such a great singer yet. Well, you know, they I mean, they didn't. They knew he could sing, but they didn't. Lily White or whoever mixed it didn't put him top dead center. It's like if you fast forward to to Joshua Tree, you'll like be like, okay, they pulled out all the stops here, made the best mics, gave him the best mid range, all of that. Yeah, and I mean, you and know. I guess the argument is that you know. Um, Maybe they knew it beforehand, but Joshua Tree made them the biggest band in the world at that point. But yeah. at this point, I, did, I don't know if you picked up on this. Like Adam Clayton is the oldest member of the band, I believe. Yeah, he was twenty when they made this record, so none of the others were even twenty yet. And so so it, it, it's it, I, I've checked out of U two long enough, right, 
to revisit this with some kind of freshness about it and realize, okay, they fucking killed it back then. You know what I mean? Right, right. Like, and, um, and it's, it's, it's one of the reasons why they got to be the, you know, the biggest well, my band first in the exposure world. as a child right. to this record was a video on MTV, of course, but then I bought October as a kid. And I feel like October is the transition record from the rough and ready boy kind of feel. Um, and then war is like, to me, war is the first. This is fully you two being you two. When we were kids and first start, starting to sort of like music and digging back into it, you know, Boy was an older record to me even then. Right. And so I listened to it and they were all on CD. It was the first, you know, the first era, era or two of CDs. And back then the sound was kind of tinny and squashed. It, you know, you didn't hear all the other things that were put into the record as is remastered now today and in glory. You can you can crank it up and hear every little chink. I I found a bunch of reviews that said they were just kind of at the time that they were just kind of run of the mill um, new wave copycats, oh. which I found interesting. Um, and a lot of people didn't like them because they were Irish. Just, I can't imagine that. Just because they didn't think anything good was coming. That's weird. Out, so but I thought that's I, weird. I thought they treated Bono as Bono's voice is just another instrument on the record, which I thought was cool. Mm-hmm. They didn't. It wasn't. There was no star machine in effect. Their egos had not weren't in play. Right. It, yet. Well, like yeah. I said, then I only knew really the video before, and I had to go back to it years, uh, you know, four or five years. But then they it sound out, like I a, liked it. Then they sound like a stadium band already. I mean, they With already. The echo, I, I think. I think for those of you out there that haven't heard this one, if you go back, it, you're, it's going to still sound like U two. So I guess if you think U two sounds like a stadium band, in the case you wonder, this record's getting a big thumbs up from me. Well, I would like to say now, I think it's held up incredibly well. I think it's. I think it moved up a notch or two on my list of best U two albums of all time. I think it moved ahead of definitely it's ahead of October. I'm going to recommend this one as well, Henry. I think it's a great record. And if you want to know what New Way yeah. sounded like in nineteen eighty or post punk, I think we're still in the post punk era. Yeah, like and this is a real record. This isn't just go, like uh how do I say it's not overproduced schlock that, that they may have gotten to do later. This is like the real thing. Right. They sound like Susie the Banshees. They sound like, you know, Joy Division. They sound like the, the real thing. Right. You know? And so. speaking of uh, the real thing, uh, something that I still don't understand, this is a band called Rock Pile. Right. And the album is called Seconds of Pleasure, and the song is When I Write the Book. Well, I can remember Like it was only yesterday Love was young and foolish like a little child of play But oh how lovers change I never dreamed out easily For now I'm just a shadow Of the boy I used to be Oh yeah, yeah And when I write the book About my love It will be about a man Who was torn in Hope and ambition Wasted through the years The pain will be written on every page And tears Oh, when I write When I write the book Oh, when I write the book about my love When I write the book about my love I was a fool to myself When I kept on running around So, Henry, I feel like if I had been in, uh, in my 20s In 1980, maybe I would have understood This fascination with late 50s rock and roll that was kind of making a comeback. I feel like there's a bit of it in punk. Like, I, I feel like the Ramones kind of had a bit of that, too. Um, but here we have, in my estimation, listening to Rock Pile, like the best bar band. I don't think pub rock is for me. <laughs> pub rock, right. <laughs> I think that's what it is. Do you know what it reminded me of? Well, it reminded me of this movie, Light of Day. Why did and it, it remind you of that? It starred Michael J. Fox. And Joan Jett, I know the and they were brothers and sisters, and they played in a bar band called the Bar Busters. And the whole movie was about the Bar Busters. And here's why it reminded me of that, Henry. When I looked up the soundtrack to see if I was crazy, Dave Edmonds did two of the song, wrote two of the songs. Oh, but because of course he did. Dave Edmonds apparently 
made a whole career out of making some 50s inspired music and was pulled into New Wave, right? He helped the Stray Cats. And I remember as a kid thinking the Stray Cats were cool in a New Wave kind of way. But yeah. really now, it's just 50s I'm glad you rehash. took. I'm glad you took on introducing this band because I, for the for the hell, I could not figure out who was in the goddamn band from one. I all right, Nick Lowe. Nick Lowe is in right, the band. Who right. was like that's gold standard? We know who Nick Lowe is. Right. Although my favorite Nick Lowe is that he produced Elvis Costello. I'm not as big of a Nick Lowe as an yeah. artist fan, but but Nick Lowe, yeah, Nick Lowe. But he is a guy and Dave Edmonds. Yeah. And I and I knew now I know of Dave Edmonds and I know how important he was. I don't know the other guys. Well, I'm going but to have another. There's a rotating cast of people, and somebody before the band, I think it's Dave Edmonds, did a record called Rock Pile. And if right? you go back and find, I tried to find some YouTube clips of Rock Pile. There's Dave Edmonds uh-huh. stuff from the '70s with. The members of Rock Pile backing him up, backing in this, but it was called Dave Edmonds. So like they were kind of a yeah. They were, you couldn't figure out who was. Is it their solo stuff or who they? Yeah. And I had this other thing in my head. I remember as a kid, there was this video that came on MTV a lot that I hated the song because mm-hmm. it reminded me of my dad's music. Mm-hmm. But this dude was playing this really weird fucking guitar. I looked it up. It's Dave Edmonds, right before Rock Pile, uh-huh. and he was playing. A Dan Electro long, 1964 Longhorn guitar. I hated that guitar, and I hated Dave Edmonds. <laughs> so I was kind of not, but I but I think I hated him for the. <laughs> oh, that's cool, man. I kind of hated him I for like, the right reason. Okay, it is the one I was thinking of. Right. Yeah, that's the one. That's cool. I like that one. I didn't like fifties rock as a kid, and now going back to it, Henry, I I just I know this band this this album is considered a cult classic. I know there's a lot of Nick Lowe fans that that I'm stepping on toes here, but didn't it to you just sound kind of like yeah? And, and um, did you see this? So, so that, I think they that put they, the best songs at the beginning. Well, did you see right? that they added a little bonus EP with the first pressing uh-uh. that said, that's called. Dave Edmonds and Nick Lowe sing the Everly Brothers? No. That tells you all you need to know about what this record sounds like. So they needed the... I was thinking, listening to it the first time, these dudes want to be the Everly Brothers, you know, really badly. So I don't know that that's indicative of what the 80s sounds like to me. So maybe I'm just not getting this whole thing, but I'm not going to recommend um, the Rock Pile record. I felt like the songs were too uh, overly positive in some ways, if that makes sense. I don't... they were just kind of like 50 songs. Uh, there's a lot of Baby, sweetness. don't you love me? Yeah. Hey, don't you want to go home? Teacher, Teacher is probably the standout track, right? I which is the and, first song. And they didn't write it. Which is the first. They didn't. No. Which is the first song on the record. Not the cover. And each additional one just kind of, they would have, and I noticed that there were good parts of songs. Like they would have a good part with a not so good bit. And so there's a reason why they only did one record, I guess. Um, from what I could tell, Nick Lowe came in and out of Rock Pile as he got more popular. So they had two guys in the band, they, Edmonds and Lowe, that were both ended up signed to different record labels or something. Well, and I mean, let's be, let's give him the devil is due. Nick Lowe produced a bunch of punk and new wave records. He produced the Damned, right? Their records. Uh, he produced um, five Elvis Costello records before they. Got crossways with there each was other. No, and, and I know Dave Edmonds helped the Stray Cats. So these guys have done yeah, a bunch of stuff that have. is very 80s. I just didn't get the Rock Bile record. I didn't either. <laughs> I, didn't either. I don't really recommend it. But I, what I do recommend is for people to try to dig into some Dave, Dave Edmonds stuff on his own. I think that stuff was probably pretty good. I'm going to look into that. As long as he wasn't playing that Dan Electro long Why long. do you care about that? I didn't like the way I love that. I don't like that guitar. I'm going to go... <laughs> Yeah, you know, a price went out like six thousand dollars. One fun thing before we move on. One thing Dave Edmonds did was he did the soundtrack for Porky's Revenge. The next record we're going to talk about is Cheap Trick, who had a record in October called All Shook Up, and the track we're going to play is uh, is called Baby Loves to Rock. Some people do and some people 
Okay, Henry, so if you'll give me just a second to, uh, to give a little backstory here. The very first ever record that I bought on my own, with my own money that I wanted, I told mom, can I go to the record bar and buy a record, was Cheap Trick, All Shook Up. And the reason I bought it was because of this magazine I had gotten called Bananas Magazine. It was their 1980s new music review. I didn't know at the time. I, I still didn't know until I got it, Henry, in the mail, that it's a children's magazine. But basically... Well, they, you were a child. Well, I was, was a child. But at the time, I thought it was like Rolling Stone. I was like, holy shit. So I, I read the article, and I was enamored with Cheap Trick and the Cars. Those are the two bands. And I picked All Shook Up as my record. I didn't get this one as a kid. Um, it's my least favorite Cheap Trick record then. I would say now... I kind of now understand what they were trying to do, but I don't like it. Okay, they failed. They right. failed. They tried to get already in. Uh, they tried to get j- right uh, experimental, and they failed. But even not. But the thing is, if you look at the first three or four tracks on the record, there's there the songs are not great. They feel and overly George Martined up. So George well, Martin then, uh, agreed to produce them, the, the Beatles yeah, producer. So but like later, the later tracks, one song sa- sounds particularly Lennon-esque, but you know it's because they're going for that. Well, and the first the, the first track on the record, too, has all the like orchestrated string kind of thing, mm-hmm. like a Beatles kind of thing. And I don't know. I applaud the effort. I just don't think they pulled it off because looking back now, and of course we have hindsight, and I think Cheap Trick would agree with you now, uh, agree with this now. Tom Werner, or I think it's the name of the guy that produced the first. The first, like, three or whatever. He got the essential what Cheap Trick sounds like. And Cheap Trick does not sound like an experimental highbrow band. They're a a three-core rock and roll band. They they were a power pop band. Yes, a power pop band. And that's what they did best. And that's Dream Police is a great record because that's what it is. And it's not like they could suddenly be... You know, the Beatles. Or... But God bless them, they tried. And there's some other interesting stuff. It's an interesting listen. Um, I don't know if you caught, Henry, there's a lot of references to ACDC on this record. There's a song that actually starts exactly the way Big Balls starts from yes. the ACD record. They also did a, a song that's about Bon Scott because he had just passed away. Right, so the, the best song on this thing that was the most interesting song, okay, was the one where they did the vocoder um, vocals on it? World's whatever. greatest lover. That was a worth. That was a worthwhile experiment. I thought. I, I the one we played it was my favorite, just because it was the least. It was just the most cheap trick and the least. The one that offended me the most were is where he was trying to sound like John Lennon, and I was like, "Oh, this sucks, man." You're, you, you, did you? You can kind of hear in there that like George Martin is asking him to try yeah. stuff, and they're like, "Well, he's George Martin." He's so. George, yeah. One note is that. Did you check out the cover? Yeah, now as a kid, that cover really freaked me out too. Because um, of the train tracks? and all I that. couldn't tell what the fuck was going on. I thought that's what New Wave meant. And I thought, I told my mom it was artistic because my mom was like, why do you want to buy this? This looks weird. <laughs> <laughs> but I like that they already had a logo. Yeah. Like Cheap Trick always had. Like that was important to me as a kid. One thing I'd forgotten too about Cheap Trick um, is how much heavy guitar solo-y kind of stuff. Oh, yeah. There is. Um, now, now well, They had the most kick-ass guitar player in, in the world. Right, but now a lot of my favorite Cheap Trick, and maybe it's because I'm such a big star fan, is when they're just kind of three-chord power-popping it. Uh-huh. This one's got a lot of guitar uh, wankery uh, yeah. going on. Xander's got that voice that's made for that. Yeah, I think it fits. I mean, I think everything fits here. It's just something's weird about Cheap Trick trying to be experimental. Something else I found interesting, just as kind of interesting about this, this was their fifth album in four years. Their fifth studio album. Fifth studio album. That doesn't count Live at Budokan, Which was their biggest record. I mean, Live at Budokan was like, I want you to want me. That was like the Mm -hmm. live version was the big one. But Tom Pedersen, their original bass player, who 
played all the bass on this record, quit during the sessions because he was like, I got to get off this train. Yeah, like, did you read about, he said that they were playing like 300 shows a year yeah. or something. And then they would like take that. two weeks and record a record and then get right back on the road. And um, Didn't that seem like abusive? Playing somebody 300 nights a year, 300 nights a, uh, a year seems... Like excessive, but you know, I don't know if you've ever seen interviews from the time or even now with Rick Nielsen. Like that dude lives for it. He's the he's that kind of guy. Like I think he just wanted to be on the road all the time. And I guess Xander was too because they didn't even (laughs) they didn't even like make a big deal about him leaving. They just went and hired another dude like right off the bat. It just seems weird. Like when did they write the songs for this? (laughs) You know, if you if you just came off a three hundred, they write them on the road. They ride him in the bus. And I kept I listening to this again, going back, going, what about this impressed George Martin that he wanted to, like, work with them? I, I would say it was my first album, so it has a place in my heart, but I, I didn't even like it as much. Did you remember him when you started listening again? You were like, oh. oh. yeah. Oh, yeah. I've listened to this record, like, I've listened to the, the fucking grooves off of it. But was it different for you when you were a kid? Yes. Now, I mean, now I can put it in context. Like, I didn't understand why it sounded shittier than Dream Police. Like, I didn't understand it. Did you? But you thought it did. Oh, it did. Right off the bat, I was disappointed with it, except that it was my first. You you know, I I had to defend it. Like, yeah, because you didn't have anything to really compare it to. Well, when it was my first, like, I'm an... I'm an art. I, this is now where I'm making artistic. Like you made your own decision. I'm making an artistic choice with my money. Right. I didn't just hear something on the top forty, and yeah, but at yeah. the same time, I didn't, wasn't admitting right, anybody. So this, this was like your flag in the ground. I like cheap, cheap trick. trick, and this I, is my record. I went to a rock journalist magazine, like a music file, yeah. and I found a band that I read about and I wanted to listen to, and I went and bought that. I record. think that's an interesting point because back then you did vote with your money, you know. And if you took a gamble on what little bit of money that you had as a kid and you and you bought a record, you had a little more reason to be offended if it didn't meet what you wanted. But right? also you had to give it a big, big time, uh, full listen yeah, because you, you, you couldn't just throw it away. Yeah, it wasn't disposable. It didn't get the cursory listen that I gave it in the car after five songs. And I'm thinking, mm, this ain't great. Also, let me keep plodding. You had to kind of decide what records you wanted to get. From print. Yeah. Because you couldn't you just read go, what somebody else said. Right. I couldn't just go listen to a streaming version of the first track and go, oh, I don't like this. I was going off of what someone said in a magazine. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm glad we're done talking about those two records because I'm really excited to talk about our last two records. Good. Uh, the, the one we're going to listen to now is Zenyatta Mandata by The Police. And this song is my favorite police song. Driven to Tears. <laughs> Has two big hits on it, right? It's da da da. It's called the do 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 da da da. Like you have to say that as the title. Yeah, yeah. The title. I always say, "Hey, remember the one the do 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 da da da." It's yeah. easier if you sing it. Yeah, and don't stand so close to me. Sure. Yeah. So this was their third record. Uh, the first one was Regatta de Blanc. The second one was Outlandis Diamor. And this one is the third one, Zinjana Mandata. And I have to say, Henry, I've always separated in my mind 
This is the last record of the first period of the police and Ghost in the Machine and Synchronicity were the second period. Yeah. And I do think those records are are probably better. But I think it's just those dumb names. You don't like the name. Well, as a kid, I remember thinking, why do they got to name everything with like either fake words or like French or some shit? Yeah. And then Ghost in the Machine came out. I was like, oh, I understand that. I felt like this thing was kind of the tale. It's like, I think I started getting tired of the sort of white boy reggae thing that was going on with it. I heard a lot of the experimentation. It's really hard for me, um, at least in this period of the police to get by what I perceive as Sting's, like, over-the-top kind of pomposity, <laughs> you know? So I focus, when I listen to these records, I focus more on Stuart Copeland, I think, and to a lessy, lesser degree, Andy Summers, when they play. So I have a completely different take than you do. Um, I hear the, so to me, the police from record one through synchronicity even though I think he's a pompous douchebag asshole, is Sting learning how to write songs. I don't think he started out as a good songwriter. And Regatta de Blanc and Atlantis D'Amour, it's the last time I'm going to say this, um, I don't think the songs are that good. And so my memory going back was exactly what you had. Uh, this one had some hits that were starting to get into the quality range, but yeah. it's got some shit on it. And then I listened to it and I was like, no. This fucking record. The first three songs on this record is are the best three songs in a row of not I'm not saying they're the best three police songs. Yeah. They're the best starting three of any record. And also, I totally disagree with you that uh about Sting's pomposity. His pomposity is on the way. I know. When you get but to I'm, uh, I'm the dream of the blue turtle and having the gone soul through cages, <laughs> you're into the pomposity. I think he's having, still freewheeling sting at I this know. point. But see here, you know, it's like we're putting. I'm glad we talked about you two first because I, because the same thing happened with Bono, right? Um, and for some reason, I can forgive that. On I think it's because Boy is rough and raw, and so I can kind of feel it. This is like these guys were like seriously good musicians even then well and i think it's a, i think you it's know. also a matter of taste so to me yeah. um i the, the the reggae thing doesn't bother me because the clash and all the english bands at the time that was kind of they're doing world yeah. music which we're going to hear on our next record and i think but also these guys already had a sound as much as you two did mm -hmm. i think the difference here is bono didn't write songs Sting is writing all the songs except for the one like behind the camel or whatever that. They didn't all write these. No, Sting writes all the songs except. So there's a there's a great story about. I hope I'm not naming it wrong. There's an instrumental on this record called Behind the Camel. Yeah, I like that one. Okay, so it's the only song written exclusively by um, Andy Summers. And to, and to prove your point about how big a dick Sting is, Sting refused to play bass on it because he thought it was a. It was a turd. So he wouldn't play bass. So Andy Summers just said, fuck it, I'll do it, and recorded it. Mm. Sting actually took the tapes from the recording studio after Summers had left and took it out of the tape machine and went out in the backyard of the studio and buried it in the backyard. Um, but the funny thing is Andy Summers' revenge was he said, I knew Sting hated it, and that's why I called it Behind the Camel. What is it? Is it called, Henry? Is it called Behind the Camel? No, that's right. Uh yeah, Behind My Camel. Behind My Camel. He said, the reason I called it that was, number one, Sting hated it, but also whenever Sting would say, why did you call it that? I would say, what is Behind the Camel? And he would say, a stinking pile of shit. And he was like, well, I know what you think of the song. But in all uh, joking aside, that song actually won a Grammy, I read, for yes. Best Instrumental Song. So Andy Summers could say, Sticking up your ass, sting. But you want a Grammy. But here's the thing, and and I, 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 I here's my thought on that. Uh, for all Sting's pompous douchebaggery, yeah, he's he's right. Um, the songs that don't ever fit in the police catalog are like that one, even though it's fine or whatever. But it's mm. not a police song. Have you heard the song "Mother" off of Synchronicity? It's been a while. Well, go back and listen to that one. We'll get to it. But that's an Andy Summers original, too. And you're like, Synchronicity's humming along like this perfect album. And then all of a sudden, get dropped like, in there like a, like it's just a hot like, rod. What the fuck? So I well, know Sting's a dickhead. 
I know Stuart yeah, Copeland yeah. hated him, but, but anyway, back back to but this record. But even if he can look past it, right? Like um, this record may be in my mind, though. I, I just want to make the point that yeah, I think it may be. It definitely passed Ghost in the Machine for me, which I thought was second favorite. And Synchronicity to me is a different; it's a masterpiece. But I couldn't believe how much all music fucking thought this record was it's the only police record they gave five stars to really they don't they like this better than synchronicity they're like <laughs> yeah. this is the fucking shit i don't know why i wasn't feeling it uh, at all and it also um, i think exemplifies what new wave was at the time pretty well too i think that uh i think that these guys i'm not sure sting is the great is the songwriter that you think he is you know what i mean I'm not sure he's the worst songwriter. He's not the worst songwriter of all time. No, what sure I love about great. Sting is I can hear him getting uh, better. He's He starts out as a not very good songwriter at all. Yeah. But you get to this middle period police. It's like it's, it's like Sting passed through. He got really good. as on, He ascended, and then he descended. So, like, by the time he got to Soul Cages and shit, it was just like, Oh God, you fucking suck. You need to get the boys back to help you out. But <laughs> I definitely think there's a trajectory with the police. Yeah. Like this record is definitely better than the two before it. It's arguably as good as the next one. And then Synchronicity, they were the biggest fuck. They were like right there with you mm-hmm. two and Josh Tree. They were the biggest goddamn thing going and they quit because they all hated each other. Um, so yeah, I guess we're going to differ on this. I think yeah. this record not only is worth a listen, this record's probably going to make my year in and maybe my decade in top 10. Yeah, list. and I'm going to give it a no this time. Okay, and I am recommending it. This the next record is Remain in Light by the Talking Heads and the song we're going to uh listen to is Seen and Not Seen. in movies, on TV, in magazines, and in books. He thought that some of these faces might be right for him, and that through the years, by keeping an ideal facial structure fixed in his mind, or somewhere in the back of his mind, that he might, by force of will, cause his face to approach those of his ideal. Change would be very subtle. It might take ten years or so. Gradually, his face would change its shape. The more he wider, thinner lips, beady eyes. Remain in Light, it's their fourth record, and you can kind of tell, I mean, it's 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 mature sounding. Well, here's what another band that started in 1977 and put out four records within four years. Right. So they're cranking them out. And uh, it sort of goes a little hand in hand with some world music aesthetic, I suppose, that was sort of starting to creep into sort of, uh, I guess you'd call it... Uh, could could you call it indie rock? I don't know if you could. Well, I think rock music. I think Talking Heads were one of the bands that were uh, considered punk. The, the, and I'm not talking about just punk rock. I'm talking about yeah. They were part of the scene with the Ramones and Blondie, which was labeled punk in the early days. But I was amazed. The record before this, uh, Fear of Music, uh-huh. is where they really went. Uh, tried to go world music, mm-hmm. and this one I think is the culmination of trying to make it. Um, not just, wow, we're fans of this. We've never heard this shit. We want to do it into let's make it into something. Like kind songs. Of, well, I don't know. I mean, Better what song. I liked about it was that this this record is so futuristic because it predates sampling. I love – there's a quote that I found uh, from Chris Franz who says, you know, you hear these six- and seven-minute jams we do on there, and a lot of these songs are one one part, uh, don't have a lot of change, just like the African music we were in love with. But he's like – 
if you did if we did ten takes in the studio, we had to play all we had to play it ten times yeah. like this long, seven minutes. He's like, you couldn't fuck it up. If you fucked it up, you had to start over again. He was like, it's not like we just did a four bar sample and then yeah. Uh, so I, I thought that was kind of neat too to think about uh, the difference and how it's weird because now I'm able to listen to this in context with you remember several months ago we listened to Fella Kuti. And it was my first time being exposed to him. Um, and now I'm forced to sort of judge between the two. And I'm like, I got to tell you, Fela Kuti kind of did it a little more for me. <laughs> than, but the, on first blush, like, it, I mean, talking heads remaining light was like the record, you know. But I, now that I listen to it in context of like people like Fela Kuti and I can hear that sort of trance-like state that his music, his that special frequency goes to, um, Talking Heads didn't really put me there, you know. Well, and I, I have a totally again different reaction to it than you did. But yeah. I, again, I also want to put it in context of. I'm just being. I mean, no, I, no, I, that's totally fine. And it's almost it's not negative. It's almost it's weird different. to say this as well because. Um, I feel weird saying I like this a lot more than listening to an African guy do actual African music. Yeah. <laughs> However, yeah. I would like to put it in context of, so this is a three album set where Brian Eno and David Byrne worked together. Fear mm-hmm. of music being the first one, uh, remaining light being the second. And then they did a record, just the two of them called um, my life in the bush with ghosts. And, and so just to put this in context, so people know what was going on. There are things that were being done on these three records that people now look back on and say they started. Mm-hmm. There's rap on this record yep. before there was any rap. On the next thing that they did together, My Life in the Bush with Ghosts, they were like, we don't have uh, Chris Franz and Tina Weymouth, and we still want to do these like looped jams. What if we did these things? What if we like put together sounds and tape recorded them and then just looped them and made samples. <laughs> right. And now you can see a lot of rap people credit that album as like the the beginning of samples. So it's like all this stuff came out of it. So I was torn, Henry, because I think this is not just the Talking Heads best record. Mm-hmm. I think this is like one of the most important records of the 80s. The problem with it is I feel the same way you do a little bit that it's not um it's a hard record to feel something about. So I, I was sitting there trying to compare it to Zenyatta Mendata, which I love, mm-hmm. and I love on an emotional level. This one I love on a cerebral level. I like all the things it does and I like all the things that it uh represents. Mm-hmm. But I can't get I'm like you. The best I can do with some of these songs is make it background. Well, it's like I can, um, it's like I can, how do I explain this to you? It's like I can appreciate on a technical level why the record is good, right? But for some reason, I'm disconnected from the feeling that it's supposed to evoke in me, right? Well, and part of that is, though, you're not coming to it when it came out in 1980 and it's blowing people's mind. Yeah. Because no one's heard a, a. but uh, why would I be that. partial to like rec- other records they did, like Stop Making Sense? You know, because I think I think you can just make a, true stories. I think you can make an emotional resonance. I suppose it. that's what it is. It, because you know, like we talked last week, and we, I told you that I, I really think some musics are really tied to a particular time in your life. Sometimes it's not not even about them being objectively good or bad, right? You know, which is an interesting observation. For well, me. I've also always found their last record, Naked, to be my second favorite behind. Well, I think it's actually my favorite, but this one I think is more important. Yeah, like I'll, but I'll, people hate Naked. Like people literally really? hate Naked, and I think it's a great record. So I can see where you have to make an emotional connection. Something interesting. I just wanted a, a tidbit from this record, Henry. Did uh-huh. you did you see the part about how they decided with the last song, The Overlord, to make a Joy Division with their version of a Joy Division? No, song? really. So they decided that they would try their best to do a Joy Division song, but here's the kicker. None of them had heard Joy Division. What? They'd only ever read articles about Joy Division. And so they made The Overlord based on what they'd read about them, and they did a pretty damn good job if you go back and listen to, to that song at the end of the record. Um, but some of that kind of stuff, they were just so 
on at this point. Like, mm-hmm. they were doing cocky shit like that. I know they expanded the band for this record to nine members. They added Adrian Bellew. And he played with uh, King Crimson, I believe. Yeah. But they, and they, they didn't have any ego about it. Like, they, they added all these dudes that could play awesome shit. Mm-hmm. And nobody was, like, flipped out about it. They just added it in. And I didn't realize that Harrison uh, went and recruited all these guys. And most of them played guitar and did the shit he did. So he kind of just started doing a little bit of keyboard stuff. But it was kind of like – I love those kind of things where it's like the ego gets out of the way because you know you're so badass. You're like, yeah, I'll bring in I, – I, if I can get Adrian Ballou to come in and play, well, what are you going to do? I'm going to sit and watch Adrian Ballou because I got him to come play. That's how badass I am. You know, wasn't Harrison and Weymouth uh, married? No, it was uh, Franz. Somebody. Franz and Weymouth were married, and oh, okay. they ended up doing uh, that their own band. Um, what were they called? Do you remember the Tom Tom Club? Okay, and they haven't that that they have a song that's so instrumental. It's been sampled in rap and everything like a million yeah. times. Genius of Love, which. I don't think that's the other problem I always have. People don't give the talking heads near enough credit for what they did, especially in New York. Yeah, I'm like sure of that. Urban, like black New York people, like Genius of Love was one of it's in the Beastie Boys book at the yes. beginning where people are like, that Genius of Love song changed everything. And that was just the rhythm section of Talking Heads. That was like when David Byrne was off with Brian Eno doing his doing own bullshit. Yeah. Um But yeah, the, I feel like they always get kind of I think all people remember from this record is same as it ever was, you know. Yeah, yeah. Which I kind of think is not one of the better songs on the record. But, but it's not bad. It's not. No, there's nothing bad. I mean, we're talking about a classic yeah, record. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm being, um, I'm pulling out my critical helmet, um, my, just looking for things that I might, you know, slag on. You can't, this is a, really an unassailable, you know, artistic right, sure. statement and, for and, sure. And, and honestly, Henry, it, and I knew you didn't know this before, which I'm glad you found through this show. But to a lot of super uh, music heads, there's no there's no shame in saying Fela Kuta is as good or better than Talking Heads. I mean, <laughs> well, that's like he's like the Elvis I, of Africa. So you're fi- you're in good company saying Fela Kuta reached you more. Well, on he, a on a emotional he did level. he did. I yeah, don't don't don't, don't, don't apologize. For that. I don't that's have to tell you. Fine. It's, I mean, you can't. I, I'm not slagging on David Byrne <laughs> right, at all. Right. <laughs> um, but, and and the record's very good, but I couldn't help but make the comparison. And, sure, um, sure, is really weird that way. But uh, yeah, this this is this will get a thumbs up from me for sure. Yeah, this is a recommend for me as well. So uh, with the five records, Henry, I know this is only half the month. This is going to be a ten record month, but these are the first five. So, what is your record of the episode? Boy, man, everybody's got to hear this record. Boy, okay, interesting. Don't forget, man, U2 was not bad. Okay, I'm trying to tell you. Are there people that have forgotten that? Yes, it's so easy in 2019, man, to 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 be wrapped up in all that horse shit. Go back and listen to Boy and remember when they were, you know, just like Joy Division and Susie and the Banshees. Well, and anyway. I, I guess for me, I was torn all week between uh, a record that I loved, Zenyatta Mandata, and a record that I knew I was supposed to love and is super important, which is Remain in Light, uh, which I think both of those are miles ahead of boy. Pick one. But I, what, what it, you know what it came down to for me what? is one changed what music was supposed to sound like, but the other sounds like what the 80s are so, so fucking sound like. And this is an 80s show. So if you want to know about the 80s, Zenyatta Mandata is your record. <laughs> so I'm going to pick uh, Zenyatta Mandata as my album of the episode even though remaining light may may be higher up at our year-end episode than this one for me i'm gonna i'm gonna go with that one the police record there you go there you have it folks we made our selection we did and henry we crushed october but that's just the first half of october right i I think we've got another right yeah i think we've got another uh october episode coming up next do you ever deep and here's something i noticed about when we're doing this is frequently we're listening to these things in blocks of five, right? That's right. So you li- I, the problem I have is sometimes I'm putting things next to other things, and it ju- it influences what I think about the record. Right. Isn't that weird? Like this Angular Boy record is up against this sort of loopy uh, talking heads thing. Right. 
and you know, and it's like it's like having to go through a whole different kind of terrain. It's a whole different vocabulary, a whole different kind of thing. And so, yeah, you know, it's very situational sometimes. Like I could revisit Zenyatta Mandata to, tomorrow. Well, what I like and about decide it, that it, wait, this actually was great. What know? I like about it is it's we're instantly putting them in a competition instead of just listening. Yeah, we're listening for. Which one's better? Who beat who? Who's going to be my record of the episode? And, you know, I, it, I almost feel like weird because, like, what right do I have to judge? I'll tell you. Whether Zenyatta Mandata was great or not. Because you are co-host of, <laughs> of 80s, 80s Music Exposed. That's, That's right. why. And so next episode, Henry, we are going to – I'm telling you, I don't think we give enough credit if we don't step back and look – these are just the other five records that came out in October of 1980. Dirty Minds by Prince. The River by Bruce Springsteen. What? Uh, Making Movies by Dire Straits. In the Flat Fields by Bauhaus. And Aerosmith's Greatest Hits. Wait a second. Can I, can I throw a flag here? Sure. Why is Aerosmith's Greatest Hits like a record? We need like, that's a, we need a real record. Well, because all music I, gave it five stars. <laughs> God damn it. They sure did. That's not right. But it didn't happen. They recorded Dream On probably like six They gave it five stars, and it came oh, out in October of 1980. So, folks, we are completists, and we are going to review I that record for you. talk shit about that selection. Many thanks to our main man, producer, Greg, that we will be dropping this episode in on. He probably doesn't know it yet. <laughs> He's done a great job for us. Thanks a lot, Greg. Um, he deserves a big shout-out. Also, if you like our show, if you like the records we're choosing, if you'd please rate and review us on iTunes. God, it feels weird to say that, but please do it. We need it. We need it. The only way we can get the show to grow is if people rate and review. You can also listen to Spotify, to us on Spotify and Stitcher. You can share it with your friends. You can chat with us on Twitter at 80s Exposed or Email us at 80smusicexposed.com. Also, uh, we still have an, our other pod up. We're not taking it down. It's called the No GD Band Podcast. The last episode, well, well the hiatus episode, went up not too long ago. So if you like that, any other hot rocks, Chris? Well, just the reason that we did that hiatus episode is so that we can focus more on this uh, podcast and bring it to you more regularly. Right, so we hope we we hope we can get them out. We're really, we're really happy for all our uh, fans. God, we have fans. We're listeners, at, listeners, fans. That sounds so really self. Yeah, I'd say listeners. Thank you, listeners. Thank you, listeners. Chris, guess what? What's up? I made you a mixtape. <laughs>